Welcome to Standing at the Edge. I'm Casey Stratton coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan. It's a beautiful spring day. I just took a three-mile walk and mowed the lawn. It's about 76 degrees, which is about 23 Celsius, so a very nice day. There's a plane flying over the house right now, so that's a great way to start Season 2. Season 2! Welcome to Season 2 of Standing at the Edge. I'm really excited to be back with another series of 12 episodes weekly. I had said I was going to do this months ago, and my therapist every two weeks in my appointment is like, have you started your podcast yet? And I say, no, I haven't. So now I have. So hello, and welcome back, uh, or welcome if this is your first time hearing the podcast. So this season's going to be different from the first season. I'm going to focus on a different album every week I asked people online which albums they'd like to hear about so I'm taking some of that feedback but I wanted to start with Lily Sleeps which I made in 1996 and 1997 uh, and the reason for that will become clearer as we go through but I didn't want to just randomly pick albums or start with Standing at the Edge I talked a lot about it's the name of the podcast but I talked a lot about that record and the process of making it in the f- season one so in this season I really wanted to talk about different works and Lily Sleeps is really where I learned how to self-produce records it was the first record that I made on my own with some help uh, from a friend which we'll talk about but it's really where I start coming into my own, but I'm also trying a lot of stuff and was being very experimental, so it's kind of all over the place and everything but the kitchen sink at the same time. But it's also really what leads to Whirlwind Medusa, which was the next record, and I think Whirlwind Medusa was the first time that I really made like a cohesive album that sounds like I sound now. Like I feel like Whirlwind Medusa is where I really hit my stride and kind of started on the journey of what my career has become with all the albums since then. So Lily Sleeps was technically my second album. I had put out an EP in Los Angeles uh, with an independent label because they ran out of money making my <laughs> making uh, my first album. So we put out an EP first and then The Giver and the Gravedigger was my first full-length album that came out in January of 1996. Um, so Nope, that's not true. It came out at the end of 1996, but it went into certain record stores in January of 1997 because I remember that I was still finishing up The Giver and the Gravedigger in October of 1996 while I was beginning Lily Sleeps in a different studio across town in Los Angeles. So I was working on both records at the same time for a minute there. So let's dive in to Lily Sleeps. Okay, so it's 1996 in Los Angeles, and I'm working on my album, The Giver and the Gravedigger, and I tell my producer from my independent label called Magic Records that I was on that I wanted potentially a co-producer credit on on, The the Giver and the Gravedigger. And he said to me, absolutely not, until you can walk into this room and turn everything on and figure out how to do it yourself, I'm not giving you any production credit. Okie doke. That's all I need is a dare. So I had a friend who had a home recording studio in the Hollywood Hills, and he was he worked on some of the songs from my EP and uh, was going to have a few songs from his studio on the Giver and the Gravedigger, but they couldn't come to an agreement with my record label. So I ended up anything to please me actually was recorded for the Giver and the Gravedigger, which seems crazy if you think about the rest of that record if you know it. But uh, it ended up on Lily Sleeps. So anything to please me is actually the oldest song from that record, and it was the most ambitious thing I had tried at the time. You, 
it's eight minutes and nine seconds long. I don't know that by heart. I have the track list in front of me so that I can remember what songs are on this thing. Uh, so yeah, anything to please me was this gigantic endeavor of like syncing up all these different machines so that we could have more tracks because things were digital but also analog then. And so I had like three digital machines and one analog 16 track, one inch analog tape and it was all we had to sync it all together and make it all work because we needed so many tracks to make that song happen and that's really where I started getting into world music with the percussion loops so obviously I'm not going to start from the beginning of the record in these just I think that's becoming clear too so we're talking about anything to please me anyhow I went to my friend and I said hey I need to learn how to record because I got told I couldn't get a production credit until I learned how to use the studio, and I want to learn how to use the studio. Now, I originally I did it because of like oppositional defiance disorder or whatever you want to call it. I mean, I wasn't like diagnosed, but I definitely have that <laughs> still. Um, I was just like, okay, well, even though that was the, the motivation at the time, it was one of the smartest things I ever did because it gave me the language. Now, when I'm in a recording studio, I know what I want. I know what I need. I know how to say it. I know the language. And a lot of people I've worked with since have really appreciated that, that I actually know how things work. And obviously, now that I make all my records myself, I'm really glad I know my way around Pro Tools. We weren't using Pro Tools back then, but um, we were actually using an Atari computer with a sequencer from like the late 80s, um, to make different keyboard tracks and stuff. So I was learning how all of that worked. Uh, I learned some during the Given the Gravedigger sessions, but not a ton. So I really wanted to just try some stuff. And then it turned out that I lost my place to live. My roommate was like, I got to go. And I was like, I get it. Our lease was up. So I didn't have anywhere to live, and I didn't really have any money because I was working at a restaurant and my mom was getting married and I asked for time off to fly to Michigan and they said no. So I had to quit my job so I could go to my mother's wedding because capitalism is fun. So yeah, I ended up living with my friend in the same house where the home studio was. So Lily Sleeps was a really <laughs> crazy emotional journey for me um, because I was living in the same house I was working in. Uh, I was working all sorts of hours, like overnight on the record. Like I'd be sometimes I'd be sleeping in the day and then recording all night. I still prefer to record at night. Uh, I usually don't even start until 4 p.m. That's pretty much the earliest I'll ever start recording to this day. Uh, so. I moved in with him, which was cool, but it was like I had my cat, my cat Henry, and me, and I was sleeping on a couch with literally like the piano like four feet away, and sometimes I'd be sleeping, there'd be microphone cables all over me and stuff because it was like, where does my home life and my work life begin and end? Like it was all the same thing. But you know, I'm like 19 or something at this point. 20. I just turned 20. So I'm rolling with it. It's cool. I'm learning the studio. Um, my friend gets me to the point where I can just be left alone. And so he, he and I would be on different schedules or he'd be sleeping and I'd be working or he, I'd be sleeping and he'd be working. Um, and I would just, whenever there was spare time, I would be jumping in there. So I was recording basically every day. I mean, I don't think it was literally every day, but it was almost every day. So I ended up recording over nine months for Lily Sleeps. And I had something like 90 songs. That's what ended up happening with Divide too, but this was my first time trying that. And again, because I was learning the studio and I was also just kind of getting into my groove as a singer-songwriter because I had all of this free studio time. Before, recording was this giant thing where I had to have, like my record label had to pay for it or I had, you know, book time and pay for it myself. But here I was, and this is before, you know, home recording was really in that much of a thing. It wasn't like it is now. You just, all you need is an iMac and a Pro Tools rig and you're off running for $600. I'm 
mean, for the software, not for the Apple or the iMac or whatever. That's what I use now, and it's a lot easier. But back then, it was still plugging stuff in with what's called a patch bay, and you'd have to be doing all sorts of crazy stuff. And all the mixing was done live. Now it's all what's called automated. So I record what I'm doing on the faders on my screen, and the computer remembers. But I learned to record in like the last standing old school studio where the board did not run itself. So you'd have to, if you messed up something in a mix, you'd have to start all over again. And everything had to be done in real time. So it, it was a very lengthy process back then. So I was learning. And because I was doing all of that and I was a young songwriter, I was just trying all sorts of stuff. I was experimenting. The B-sides, if you've heard them, some of them are just off the wall. Like, who am I? Am I a punk band all of a sudden or trying to be? But I was just like, let's try this. Let's try that. There was an electric guitar that someone brought, like loaned me and I had an amp. So I'm like, let's try this. Let's try this other thing. I, somebody loaned me a bass for a little while. And I'm like, all right, I'll I guess I play bass now. So there are some songs on there like I wanted it. I can think of offhand where I'm playing the bass and I don't really, I mean, now on my records, it's all keyboard. So I was just like into it, but about halfway through making that record, I literally had like a nervous breakdown where I just completely shut down and just couldn't function. I, and it was because I hadn't been in the outside world like at all. I mean, hello, pandemic. Very similar in some ways, except we didn't really have, you know, the internet. We did, but not the way we have it now. It was dial-up. It took forever. You didn't really, I didn't really like using instant messenger ever. Um, I didn't like texting when it first became a thing either, coincidentally. I, I was never a fan of anything that was so instant like that. I, I was still kind of old school. Like, if I'm not home, you don't need to be able to contact me. I didn't even get a cell phone until 2002, and that was only because I signed to Sony and got busy in the music industry and realized I needed a cell phone because I was traveling a lot, and I just got a lot of important calls, quote-unquote. At the time, I thought they were so important, but who knows. Anyhow... So I'm writing the record and I'm just trying stuff and the album order changed like a million times and songs got put on and taken off and put on and taken off. I remember one day I was in the car with Carney Wilson, who's a dear friend of mine to this day, and like she was all mad at me that I took one of the songs off the album and told me she thought I was making a mistake. We kind of had a little tiff over it. It's all, it all turned out fine in the end. But I just really wanted the record to, to be epic and I th and cinematic and I think I succeeded in that there are definitely some interesting songs on there and I was also just finding my way through you know the the end of my teenage angst into my early 20s and just listening to a lot of music at the time I was really listening to a lot of CDs that were coming out remember those CDs so yeah it was just a really interesting time but I don't remember the first thing I recorded but I know that in October and November, December 1996, I was working on some of the songs that had I already had like little demos of. I had this reel-to-reel -reel analog machine that could record four tracks, a four-track tape. So I had all these little demos with my Casio keyboard and my acoustic guitar in my apartment in West Hollywood before I moved. So I know that Coattails Dragging was part of that, which ends up being the first song after the prelude. This was also the first album where I did like a prelude, postlude. Um, I've done prologue, epilogue, all sorts of stuff like that since then. I totally stole all that from Janet Jackson. Like, I'm not going to lie at all. Like, it was like, oh, this is my rhythm nation, I guess. So I was into it. I like that feeling of making a record almost feel like a book. So, or a story or a movie. Again, cinematic. I'm always going for a cinematic sound. So I know that I wanted it was already a thing. Uh, only a handgun, I believe, was already a demo. And Blue Colored Sashes was already a demo. Everything else I wrote during... But uh, those four were written before I started the album. And 
it, I'll give you a hint, and I hope I wouldn't get sued for this because it's not close enough. But if you listen to um, Only a Handgun, I'm really inspired by the very beginning part of Kate Bush's song Between a Man and a Woman from the sensual world. She does this thing at the beginning with all these vocals, and she only does it once, never comes back again. But I loved it, and I was obsessed about it. And if you listen to that and then listen to Only a Handgun, you might hear that they're similar. i got to move my mic. It's slink, slumping. Slinking? Oh, My apologies. My microphone is falling. So, yeah, I'm recording all these songs. I'm loving it. Uh, Coattails Dragging is actually a really interesting one. And Blue Colored Sashes is kind of, kind of, is kind of its sister or brother, sibling, or however. I don't think my songs need any sort of pronouns, actually. Um, they can be gender non-conforming or non-binary, or whatever they are. It doesn't matter. Um, Coattails Dragging. That's what I was doing. I'm like, what was I talking about? Coattails Dragging, I wrote based on a dream. And I didn't know then, of course, that I would go on to make a whole record based on dreams, Lantern Through the Labyrinth. But I had this dream that was very ornate. And it, what was interesting about it was the feelings, like the physical bodily feelings I was having. So I lived, it was like, I don't know, the 1700s. And I lived in, I believe, England. And there was this large party and the orchestra was playing and people were dancing. And I was a woman. Uh, a mother and a wife and my hair was all you know up in an updo and everything and then uh the dream progressed to waking up in the middle of the night with the house on fire and having to try to get my children and escape with my husband but I could feel that my hair was down at this point because I was sleeping and I could feel that my scalp hurt from having my hair had being being in that updo for as long as it was and that was just a weird sensation for me because you know I'm a male and I've never had long hair like that so the fact that I felt that feeling of like oh I, I can feel the, the pain in my head from this updo it was just strange so a part of me was, has always been like is was that a past life I was, and especially then I was all up in all that stuff I, I'm open to any possibility now but back then I was like yep reincarnation's a thing I believe it. So we ended up running outside in the backyard, and I remember standing next to my husband watching the house burn down and just being beside myself. So that was what inspired the song Coattails Dragging. So that might make more sense if you look at the words now. Um, some of the, the words on that record are very strange, but again, I'm 20, so I'm experimenting, and I just think, ooh, how, how much weirder can I make this? And hello, I'm listening to Tori Amos, so if you want to look at some weird weird lyrics, <laughs> start there. If Boys for Pele came out while I was, or just before I started that record, so I was into it. Choir Girl Hotel was not out yet, if you're a Tory fan, but this by this point, there's three solid records out. I'm super into Tory. You know, to this day, people are some, just the other day, someone on YouTube is like, you know, you really should get your own sound because you just sound like Tory Amos. But I have some songs I wrote, and I think that you could do them and then sound like you have your own sound. I'm like, oh, thank you, thank you so much. I love when people are condescending when it's completely unwarranted. The other funny thing is it was a YouTube video from 11 years ago. But okay, sure. Um, what other songs are interesting? Lily Sleeps, the song, that that one kind of breaks my heart. And it's really just this composite of all the times that I had felt heartbreak and I of losing someone, being broken up with. And I kind of turned it all into this one song. It's kind of fictional, but kind of not, because when I think of it, I think of the being in the actual apartment I was living in right before I started the record and having, you know, the footsteps. When I hear your footsteps fade, I fall to the floor. God, I don't think I can take much more. Try to pull it together and then say, what for? I like that part. I'm really 
really proud of myself that I just remembered that. <laughs> I'm kind of famous now for not knowing the words to anything anymore. So I remembered all those lines. I think they're close to right. They're close enough. But I love that imagery of just like literally throwing yourself on the floor. And I have found in my experience of grief that that often happens to me when I'm going through something very, very painful. Like I'll be walking up the stairs and I just fall down, like fall to the ground. Uh, and maybe that's dramatic, but I'm alone. So, you know, it's my business. Um, Unicorn, really interesting song. That one really was just inspired by all the different sounds. Um, there was a, a group called Spawn Ranch that was recording a record in the studio during the day. And they let me use their keyboards that they brought with them and were keeping at the studio while they were making the record. And they told me I could use them. So I had all these cool sounds I had never been able to play with. And I had all these drum loops and things happening. So that's where Unicorn came from. And I was just kind of experimenting. There's all the different delayed background vocals that move around. And so all the harmonies have to delay as well. And um, just f experimenting with that. I only had eight digital tracks to work with at any given time. So a lot of the songs are actually eight tracks or fewer because trying to sync up the analog tape was just such a drama that I didn't do it very often. Um, I didn't like it. So um, a lot of the songs were me having to make choices of what I wanted to do because I was so limited by tracks. Now, of course, you'll hear my records with all the millions of background vocals because it's all digital and I can just have as many tracks as I want. I think I can only have 96 actually, but I can have a bunch. Uh, so that that was a fun one to write. Um, Empty was really written like because I was trying to write a pop song. So that's the other thing. <laughs> I should probably just own up to it because it's true. I was meeting with a lot of record companies during this time and they all kept telling me that my music was too dark or they didn't think it was marketable, that I needed to do stuff that was more upbeat, that sounded more like pop music. So I was trying within the confines of my artistic integrity to write songs that were more pop sounding. And I don't know if I was or successful or not in that. Um, this is another thing about my old records. I have gotten good at giving myself grace. Like there are definitely cringeworthy things, but I was coming into my own. I was figuring it out. I was self-producing at 20 years old. So I try to remember that. Like, what would I say now to a 20 year old making that record? I'd probably say, wow, that's really great. Even if it's not perfect and there's stuff I, you know, might want to change as a 44 year old. I give myself the grace to remember that that was 24 years ago. I mean, I'm more older now than I was then. I mean, I'm more old. You know what I mean? I'm not going to go through it. I'm 24 years older. I wasn't even 24 at the time, I guess is what I was trying to say. <laughs> so I give myself grace sometimes when some of the songs I'm like, well, that's not the best one in the world, but whatever. Um, I'm looking at my track list. That's how I, I've got it up. Addicted to my poppy comes after empty on that record. Now I am going in order a little bit. That song, um, I really like the ending, especially of the coda. It's called when there's a part of a song that enters in at the end that you've never heard before. It's not hearkening to anything else. It's not a repeat of the chorus or a verse or the bridge or what is called the middle eight in some countries, some English dialects, but it's just a standalone piece at the end. It's called a coda. That has a coda at the end. I have a friend that calls me the Coda King because I like to throw them on songs. That's my classical training coming into the picture. But I also just think it's fun sometimes to shift gears in a song and go somewhere else with it. Addicted to My Poppy is also where I was really starting to get much better at playing the acoustic guitar. If you listen to that song that is me playing guitar, I played guitar way better then than I do now because I was playing it all the time. And now I hardly ever do. It's very dusty. My two guitars are very dusty and I can't even think of the last time I played them except it was probably at some sort of live thing where I didn't want to bring a keyboard with me. So maybe, I don't know, it's been more than a year. I'll just say that because I haven't gone anywhere. Um, what other, oh, 
So I'm going to get real here. So Sunflower. I used to get asked about that one a lot. Um, That song was also fiction, but it was me trying to come to terms with alcoholism in my family, with my father. He no longer drinks. He is in recovery since way back when. Um, But at the time, he had ended up having... Um, alcohol poisoning and the doctors basically told him like if you don't stop drinking it's not good so I was trying to come to terms with that because at the time he wouldn't stop and I had to go through that thing where you are dealing with someone struggling with addiction and you realize that you can't change it they have to want to change it you can't use the guilt of like you're my dad and blah 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 what if you died that would be terrible but I was starting to have to come to terms with the fact that he might not make it through it And that was my song of trying to process what that would be like to lose a family member like that. It didn't end up happening that way, and I'm grateful for that, and I'm grateful that my my father was able to stop. Um, But definitely that song was a tough one to write. It's a tough one for my family to hear, but it was so necessary at the time. Another one I want to talk about is Fixed. I think it's the only song like that I have ever written if I think about it, like the kind of jazzy feeling of it. Um, Very different from anything I had done before, and I don't even think I could replicate something like that. It's just not really the way I write most songs. It's not really my style, quote-unquote, per se. But at the time, I was really into it. And I love playing it live. To this day, sometimes I play it live, but that's another one where I have (laughs) definitely more than one recording of me not getting the words right to that song live. One time I even just started singing I don't effing know the words. I didn't say effing, but... Yeah, that one's really fun to play live, but again, struggling with lyrics, always, always, always. Blue Colored Sashes, again, I really, really love that song. I'm playing this, like, um, pedal organ in it, where you literally have to pedal to make the air puff into the, the whatever pipes to make it happen. I don't know how that works, but I know it does work. I know how to play them. I just don't know how they work, really. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I did at some point, but it escapes me. I'm sure everyone knows, or you can Google it. It's the modern world. Um, Blue Colored Sashes was super fun to record. Um, that one also uh, was one of the first songs that I recorded. And maybe it was f- also for The Giver and the Grave Digger. It may have been. I don't really remember. But it might have been. I know it was at least at the very, very beginning. It was like one of the first songs I recorded. For sure. Because I remember doing all the vocals and that really high vo- vocal at the end that's quiet. I can't even do that anymore. Um, because of my neck issues that have affected my my voice, my range got very limited, um, which is kind of sad when I look back because that's one of the things that I, you know I was really known for is having a very large vocal range. But oh well, I've had to come to terms with a lot of things. I can barely play the piano or any instruments anymore. So, and it's, it's I did find out recently that the nerve damage I suffered uh, in my with my spinal cord and my cervical spine is permanent. So. I'm just coming to terms with that, um, and maybe that's another reason why I wanted to do this podcast, because it's kind of fun to go back and remember when I could do things better than I can do now in some ways, although, you know, my voice has aged and all these things, and I, I think in a good way, um, you know, I sound so young on those records, I can't even believe it, but again, 20, I, I work with people around that age now, and I'm just like, I can't imagine. Um, so I, I, not, I guess I'm proud of myself. I mean, I'm not going to lie about it. I'm really proud of the work I made at such a young age and to have that kind of work ethic. I mean, I was living in Los Angeles. I could have been partying every night, but instead I was working, 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 working to my own demise at certain times. But I don't think I would have gotten anywhere I got in my career 
if I hadn't had that kind of like 24-7 attitude. I don't have that with a day job, I'll tell you that. But with music stuff, I mean, Stand at the Edge, I was there 16 hours a day, six days a week. I mean, almost every day, 12 to 16 hours, I'd say. I talked about that in a previous episode, but... Oh, by the light of the melancholy moon. I love that song. I love the ending when all the vocals come in. It's another one that's just about heartbreak and just that feeling, the void that you feel when you lose someone in your life close to you like because they no longer want to have a relationship with you and you know that you messed up some stuff. I mean, maybe not everything, but you know that you're part of the reason. And I was so dramatic. Oof, I would not have dated 20-year-old me. I'm going to tell you that now. Um, I was. I was so dramatic. And I mean, maybe it's because I was an artist and a theater kid and an orchestra kid and a choir kid and an interlocking kid or interlocking arts academy where I graduated from high school. I mean, I went to a boarding school for the arts. So, you know, definitely drama. We didn't have the internet there. So drama was all we could do to entertain ourselves. Like there was maybe a TV in the lobby of your dorm. If you were lucky, you could see. I remember watching the Winter Olympics. That's about it. That was a funny experience for me because I lived in the middle of nowhere and was completely cut off from the world. And I remember coming home from school on spring break and people were talking about friends. And I was like, what's friends? I had no idea. But obviously it was a huge hit. And I'm looking forward to the reunion this week tomorrow anyhow oh yeah i guess it's the may 27th or 26th for me right now uh, but this will come out tomorrow may 27 anyhow what is there anything else on there that i haven't mentioned that i wanted to i am remembering was actually one of the last songs i wrote i went to lilith fair and i can't even remember who was performing but there was this chord progression that i was just into and there was a feel that the song had and i was like well, when i get home i'm going to write a song that sounds like this song and i think songwriters who don't admit that are maybe lying i mean you can't speak for everyone else but there are plenty of songs that i've written because i liked another song <laughs> like that's just how it works if you're inspired by something you know you're going to want to copy it especially when you're young i mean that's one of the best things you can do there used to be that i mean there is a book called how to steal like an artist i think it's called it's just been out for a long time so it made me think used to um but yeah it's it's how you learn is, is copying and really i mean people give me a lot of crap for covering tori amos so much but if i hadn't been in coffee shops playing her songs i don't know where i would have ended up because playing her work really taught me a lot i mean hello to play her piano parts you got to get pretty good so it really helped me. And then as the songwriter, there were just so many people that inspired me. People often, you know, quickly jump to Tori Amos, but I was really into Sinead O'Connor, Sarah McLachlan, Lorena McKennett, Peter Gabriel, Bjork, Radiohead. I mean, there were so many artists that were inspiring me back then. I would listen a lot to Stevie Wonder and just like, you know, classics and just um, Janet Jackson, again, huge inspiration, mostly her Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis stuff, but still really kind of pulling for, and classical music. I mean, I love so many classical composers and they really inspired me. So I was pulling from all sorts of places, especially on this record, Lily Sleeps, because there was just, the, the world was my oyster kind of situation because I had this studio I could work in and that was just like a dream come true to me at the time because I loved recording and I, lo I love to this day the feeling of writing a song and then turning it into a recording. It's really, really interesting to have something that didn't exist and then suddenly it does and you wrote it and then people have impressions of it and feelings about it and post about it or, or talk about it or listen to just, you know, mention they're listening to it. It's a weird thing to be like, oh, I made that and people listen to it. Weird. 
It's still weird. I've been doing this now since 1995, but it's still weird. So yeah, 26 years ago, I started my professional career in a couple months here in June. Oh, a couple weeks. Next week, it'll be 26 years in the business. Anyhow, that's Lily Sleeps. I didn't really have a script or anything for this. I was just like, I'm going to start talking and see what happens. I'm probably going to do fast and loose like that with all of these records that we're going to talk about. I don't, I'm not even sure what the next one's going to be, so I can't tease you. But hopefully you'll be back next time, and I will see you then. Everyone, please take care and stay safe. We are still dealing with COVID. It's hard to believe it's been so long, but really hope everyone is doing well and staying safe, and I'll talk to you next time. Bye.